Hi, my name is Nick Thompson and I run holisticvet.co.uk. We're based near Bath in England. I'm Dr. Brendan Clark. I'm based at Towerwood Vets in West Yorkshire. And my name's Dr. Connor Brady, the non-vet of the gang from dogsburst.ie. And together we are Raw Pet Medics. <laughs> We are going for it in a really, really big way. We are RPM. Hello. We are here with the usual suspects, but the rose among the thorns, we have Dr. Oh, soon to be Dr. Nikki Kamek has come to join us. Um, So first of all, guys, I'd just like to say thank you very much to all our Patreon people who are supporting us massively. And just to say, uh, Nikki, welcome. How was your Christmas and New Year period? Thank you so much for having me again. It was great. How was yours? Really great. Really great. How about you guys? How were you? Well, I've switched over here. Yeah, um, it's, it's so, switched because you're frozen. I don't know yeah. why. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I love that. Great so ah. we've, just got Connor's, we've got Connor's rants coming. Don't worry about it. But we've just got a wonderful <laughs> posed picture. Am I, am I frozen <laughs> or can you see me? Can you see you're me? Frozen. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're being frozen. Why does this happen to me all the time? Honest to God, this is not fair. <laughs> the wrong side of the Irish Sea. Oh, this is not fair. <laughs> uh, Nikki's see, coming through. Lovely Nikki. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've got Nikki all the way from the USA. Taking all the bandwidth. Perfect. And what's happening is poor old Connor can't even get across the Irish Sea. Oh, I mean, yeah, I can't. <laughs> okay, Connor, you can stop pretending you're frozen now. Come on. I will be. Enough, I will be. Enough, <laughs> give me, enough. Give me two minutes to switch off the voices and I'll be back in, uh, in two seconds, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, while while the Irishman's gone, um, tell us um, tell us who you are. No, tell you what, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell everybody because you're one of my favourite people within the raw food world, and I'm just going to tell them about how I got to know you. Now, guys, Nikki Kamek is remarkable. She came over to the Raw Feeding Veterinary Society conferences, flew all the way over with her lovely husband for what three, four annual conferences and i couldn't believe it people were coming from the netherlands and i thought wow you're really cool and then nikki comes in and goes hi i'm from connecticut and it's like oh my god where's connecticut (laughs) yeah yeah where's that is that out is that near birmingham (laughs) birmingham uk um no no no, it's near manchester because she's from cheshire It's right. She is from Cheshire. Yeah. She's from Cheshire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm from Cheshire, says Nikki. <laughs> so Nikki, she runs North Point Pet, which is which has got every every award going. Listen, we were going through a, a, a list of her awards, and I said, Nikki, stop. Just tell us which awards you haven't got, because it's going to be a much shorter list. She's got the coolest. Uh, independent retailer. She's got the the, the 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 best. She's got the you know. She's got lots and lots of awards. They do a lot of work, and they they produce really really amazing food, and they 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 educate and they do everything. So um, that is my, how I've my relationship with you today. And now you're you're studying. You're doing your PhD with the amazing Joe Barges. 
and you're doing a PhD in metabolomics and canine nutrition. How about that? I learned that all myself. <laughs> Tell us a bit about metabolomics. What is it? Yeah, so metabolomics is under omics. So for everybody's heard of genomics, another popular one is proteomics, the study of the genome, the entire genome mm-hmm. of different organisms. You know, we've done the human mm-hmm. and the dog. Uh, C. elegans is another uh, hot one right now. Metabolomics is studying of all metabolites, so all of the little um, uh, compounds. Guess, yeah, compounds that are uh, present within either A, an entire organism, or B, you could study an organ or a biofluid, so that could be blood or urine. Um, It's actually what I study. Um, um, And so what we try and do with that is either A, characterize disease. Um, We can try and figure out where things are going haywire. Um, From a, um, a metabolism standpoint, we can study how food impacts an organism. There's a ton of different things that we can do, and it's a really, really Ooh, exciting field to be in right that's now. That's exciting. So is this, is this the link that you've got, like the human side? Because I know you came from the human mm-hmm. side where yep. they're really – so a lot of the functional doctors are really studying into mm-hmm. all of the things that you're passing out in your urine now so that they can work out how you're taking those foods, how you're metabolizing them, what yep. could be the inflammatory pathways mm-hmm. that you're going through. Is that right? Yeah, so it's um, – a- a way that everyone might be familiar with um, metabolomics is, um, at least in the U.S., I'm sure this is true in the U.K. Um, and throughout Europe as well, we test all newborns for something called inborn errors of metabolism. And those are small genetic defects, or they could be large genetic defects, that impede different metabolic processes throughout the body. And some of them can be quite toxic and quite deadly. And that's kind of kind of was my intro to metabolomics um, it, it, during my master's degree. Uh, my master's is in human nutrition, um, functional nutrition, which is essentially biochemistry. Um, and I became fascinated with what we're able to uh, figure out about the body um, just through studying urine. And so it kind of brought me down this rabbit hole. And I said, I remember, I think, talking to Connor about it. You do are we not doing this in dogs? Yeah. <laughs> and um, the answer was no. Um, so I had to really start for a program and ended up stumbling upon uh, this little project. I say it's little because um, it's quite quite big. I can't talk too much about it, but uh, this little project uh, here at UCA, uh, I got really, really lucky uh, being introduced to uh, the, the doctors and researchers here uh, through a, friend, a really good friend of mine. And so the rest is kind of history. That's cool. I love it. It's like, what sort of diseases? Uh, like, I always think, when I think of metabolites, I always think of um, vets having a look at um, excess protein in the wee and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Off the top of your head, what sort of mm-hmm. things are on the horizon? Whatever bet we can do now. So in humans, I, again, thought this was absolutely fascinating. Um, there are researchers that have identified metabolites that are present in humans. I believe it's 10 years prior to outward symptoms of no Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. What? So if we can get a grasp on things like that, it's a game changer. Whoa, that's mm. nuts. That's insane. Hey, even, see in even, this cup and we can tell you yeah. if you're going to get some this. of the predispositions to cancers as well. You know, mm-hmm. the genetic predispositions yeah. to some cancers, they can tell. So this whole thing about you know, medical dogs sniffing your urine and working mm-hmm. out whether you might have cancer. You know, these the are the 
Absolutely. And that's what's so fascinating. I think it's an excellent thing. In the connection to... We haven't even come on to this. Yeah, well, the connection to uh, proteomics and genomics is metabolites are going to be present or not present if genes are switched on to express or maybe switched off to not express. So it actually is almost like the glue that, if you will, for those other fields. So metabolomics is what we call it a team sport. There's not never going to be one, um, you know, bombshell metabolomic scientist because you see these papers come out and, you know, people that I am fortunate enough to get to work with, I mean, there's a bunch of them and they're all brilliant, but it's, it's a total team sport. Not any one person can be a master at it. Cool. Cool. I mean, you, you speak of papers. It is interesting that uh, it's not like you're new to the whole show. You've taken the unusual approach, uh, Nikki, of uh, coming into your doctorate with a paper behind you. And I suppose, Nick, unless you were going to ask a question there, uh, I'm dying to talk about that paper. Were you going to ask a question there, Nick? No, I was just going to say that uh, you've spent, before, even before you did the PhD, you spent a couple of years doing your paper. Please tell us about mm. that paper. What, just give us, a, give us a, an introduction. Yeah. Well, you were actually the one that kind of lit the fire for that paper, if you remember. Hey, um, no. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah, definitely so... tell us about that. <laughs> tell everyone how I was involved. Let's, we let's were get it on in... me. Let's write it down, guys. <laughs> you say, why is my name not on the paper, he's saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We need words, young lady. We, um, we were, I believe, in Helsinki. It might have been the last time that that conference happened, because I think COVID was shortly thereafter. But yeah, it was uh, the Jogger's paper had come out on their survey for raw. And in talking to Johanna, um, there were a couple of things that we thought we should do differently. And there were a couple of things that we thought we could do in addition. And so um, I enlisted the help of my good friend here in the States, Dr. Ryan Yamka, put out the survey and we got a large amount of responses, which was fantastic. Uh, throughout the world, a U.S., U.K., uh, Dr. Vicki Adams helped us do the stats on it. And um, it, yeah, it was a large project. COVID definitely uh, drug it on, unfortunately, put a couple wrenches in there, and, you know, stopped some of the uh, data collection a little early. But, you know, all, all in all, I was many, really, really happy with it. How many households did you get, Nikki? How many, uh, what sort of size, sample size are we talking about? Um, we had about 5,600. So for any researcher, um, sample size is huge. You know, a lot of times with these raw studies, you're getting 10, you know, eight, 10 dogs. You know, you're lucky if you have that. So we had, we had 5,600. So nice sample size. 62 yeah. countries? Yep. Wow. All over um, the world. That's really, really cool. All over the world. Yep. All, all over the world, all different um, walks of life, which was really awesome to see. Um, so what we wanted to know is what the prevalence was of, basically pathogenic infections uh, as related to households that feed raw. And, you know, you always hear about these cases and you always hear that it's, it's an issue, but you know, where were they? Um, so we said, all right, let's, let's see what we can do. And let's see if we can get some laboratory reports confirming um, these pathogens. And the fact of the matter is we had zero in goose egg, which was Yay. great to see from our side, but it also, you know, we were secretly kind of hoping for some, because if we can identify the cases and, you know, what those pathogens are, we can then figure out where the breakdown is. Um, yeah. Hang on, let's, we had mm -hmm. 5,663, was it? Uh, uh, 5611, I think. So 5,611. Responses 
and zero confirmed cases zero confirmed of infection cases. of raw food to dogs mm -hmm. or humans? Mm -hmm. We had some suspected ones, um, okay. which is a whole other rabbit yeah. hole. Yeah. Because yeah. when you have a suspected case, whether it's in human or an animal, um, the immediate, usually the immediate treatment is going to be the introduction of antibiotics and antibiotics are wonderful. Um, you know, they've saved civilization more than once. However, uh, when you overuse them, we have a greater problem. Um, you know, we're worried about the pandemic right now. Um, there's other things that could be way, way worse than that. Uh, if we continue down this path of overusing antibiotics. And so that was actually a, a bit that we did uh, discuss in the paper because just throwing out antibiotics, especially in our animals, can still uh, disrupt the health and immune response of the humans living in the household with the animal that's taking those antibiotics. Yeah. Okay. So if we were to take those suspected cases um, mm -hmm. and the sort of rate, so if we sort of compare that to the um, Helsinki paper and we start to look at what 65, I think, were suspected. Um, I know they then split it down and there's far fewer mm -hmm. that are actually proved. Um, mm -hmm. Are you finding a similar proportion? Are you getting a similar, so a third, let's say you've got about yeah. a third of the cases of them. So are you getting about 20, 25 suspected cases or slightly more? What was your? Um, yeah, so we did. We had it. We had a lesser, obviously, uh, sample size than they did, but we actually put our numbers up against uh, theirs in our paper and we did the graphs out. Vicky did a fantastic job with that. Um, so if you want to go in and, and take a look at the comparison to the health paper in our, uh, you're going to see the almost the exact same results. When you say confirmed for everybody else, like, you know, suspected cases is where people think, look, I suspect it was the dog food or they had a chat with the vet and mm -hmm. the vet said it was the dog food and now it's in your head, it's the dog <laughs> food. Uh, more like it. Well, so when you say confirmed, what, what's involved in confirmed it is 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 actually culturing the the infection that the human has as well as the the, the bugs that are in the dog food. And when those two monsters match, match then we have a lab confirmed. But that's quite a laborious process. So mm -hmm. I suppose what they might say would be that, oh well, if we just add more lab confirmings and this kind of nonsense that goes on. But what the paper reeks of straight away is that you just you found nothing. And it wasn't like you were talking about a set amount of time. This is like, have you ever had an infection from your dog food? So it's not just 5,000 cases. It's 5,000 cases over the length of time that person has been feeding raw, which is years. So it's not like we looked at it for a month. That could be millions of feeds, as the Helsinki paper highlighted. Like you're talking houses with multiple dogs, fed multiple meals a day. So you're talking millions of meals in a, in a country, in a, if most, most of the uh, responses were American. One in seven Americans get food illnesses get mm -hmm. food infections uh, every year. One in seven. And where are they from? Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, this is just an American veggies. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Fruits and veggies. veggies, exactly. So it's like, it, it's, it's, it's crazy that they want, you have just proven that the food is so, it seems to be almost, as, as Anna Heimborgman said, Professor Heimborgman said, like an oral vaccinating effect. It's like, how is mm -hmm. this, how is there this little cases? What an amazing study. Did anybody share this, Nikki? Did you find a great response from the veterinary community. That was something <laughs> The veterinary community knew. Um, you know, a couple <laughs> of the veterinarians <laughs> that I, um, we didn't get a large um, response from it. But it is one of the better read papers of the Frontiers Journal, which is really exciting. As a, as a first figure? time publisher, I was Yeah. What was that figure you, you gave us earlier? What was the uh, figure? More What's than 71% figure? of other papers of Frontiers. Look at that. That is wow. amazing. That's pretty awesome. Well done. Congratulations. That's 
That is just nuts. Good on you. So it just yeah. shows that lots of people, it's the power of social media, because we are a nation of millions. There's millions of people feeding raw dog food, up, up to 20% of UK, America's coming online, Australia. And so there's a huge amount of people waiting for this information. So it just shows the power of that end of things, that when people like Habib and Becker get behind us, and that's 5 million people straight away, mm-hmm. you know, it does help to get the correct information out there. How was the process for you? Was it, uh, how did you find it? Would you ever do it again? Um, yeah, I would do it again. I mean, I didn't, honestly, I didn't have a hard time. I am kind of geeky. I love to write. So, uh, I didn't have a problem with it. I think many of, or at least Nick and Connor read, you know, several versions of the draft. I think you both know there's a couple other papers that are potentially can get published from that, from a lot of the, the background and industry research that was done. Um, and the expertise of a couple of the other authors as well. Um, but no, I didn't think it was bad. Uh, I, I would, I, I will be doing it again because there's a lot of papers that have to get published with my doctorate studies. But yeah, you'll you'll be seeing more. That sounds so cool. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, it's paper. Let's do a Nick, you've put that paper. You've put that reference yeah, on there. Uh, I put Patreon. the paper up on pa- Patreon. When you want to dig into to something in a paper, um, look at the references. Um, I think it's Johanna's paper. We've got a really robust set of references. Uh, you know, in our at the end of our paper that gives you all the information you need to be able to go back and find um, more information. Yeah. The other thing, I'm just seeing some of the comments and I want to address, um, everyone talks about pathogens in raw food and then dry food and everything else. And in the U.S., and I'm sure the same is in, in many countries throughout Europe, but in the U.S., it doesn't matter what the format is of pet food, right? It could be fresh food cooked. It could be frozen raw kibble, canned, freeze-dried, air-dried, I don't care what it is. Uh, it has a zero-tolerance policy. And I discussed this a lot in the paper. Uh, it has a zero-tolerance policy for the FDA for pathogenic food. So what that means, regardless of pet food format, any pathogen that is found in that pet food, it is considered to be adulterated. So that notion, that raw food, commercial anyway, commercial raw food is contaminated with pathogen is incorrect. The major difference, and we talk about this too, is homemade pet food in the United States could potentially be a problem because human food, the food that we go to the grocery store and purchase for ourselves, is allowed to be contaminated with various pathogens um, because it's sold with the intent of being cooked. So there's a kill step that you're introducing at that point, whereas raw pet food um, you're not supposed to cook that. So that has to have that zero tolerance policy. So what we talk about is the changing of verbiage from raw pet food or raw meat-based diet to minimally processed diet. So that's a really, really important step for us as a raw community to take because minimally processed diets encompass two things. They encompass your raw, right? And that could be your commercial raw or your homemade raw. And then mm-hmm. it also includes fresh food. So that's in that being, I mean by that's cooked. So your cooked diet. And that becomes really important for us as research scientists and as a veterinary community because we're now able to start categorizing pet food in the same way that we categorize human food. So mm-hmm. processing steps. So mm-hmm. ultra processed, uh, minimal processed, to moderately processed, and then raw. Um, so all of those things for us as a raw community are really, really important to, to start, um, adapting. 
Would that not bring you under the remit of the USDA no, as opposed to the FDA? Well, I mean, yes, it is a concern. Um, but what we're more talking about is the NOVA classification of food. So we're starting to look at pet foods in the same way that we're looking at human foods and their Christ. relationship to disease. Um, so if you all could help us um, in changing that, uh, that would be really, really helpful for everybody. And it's going to be helpful for the veterinary community to then also understand what these different types of diets are. Oh, that's good. I like that. <laughs> How does this come about? Yeah. So Dr. Donna Radatek from Canway uh, published a paper, and that's also listed in mine. It's called Insights into Commercial Pet Foods. Um, and she discussed um, that just changing the, the verbiage uh, for different types of pet foods. So we mentioned that in our paper as well. And you're, you're going to see other papers that are, are in the process of getting published right now um, talking about that. So we're changing Amazing. it from a uh, literature perspective. And so we're hoping to see that kind of cross over into practice as well as into household. That's amazing. And um, before we, we uh, came on, on air, you were saying that actually your, the, the, the paper with Salmonella, E. coli, uh, that actually dovetails into the DCM work that you've done with Ryan mm -hmm. Yamka. Tell us about mm -hmm. how, how those two things link. Yeah, so um, when I teach, or when Ryan and I teach on these topics, we usually link them and kind of just try and back up and put this in perspective for everyone. Mm. Again, I like to speak from a U.S. Um, lens because I am not as familiar with all the different pet food practices in uh, Europe and in the U.K. However, mm -hmm. I know that a lot of things are similar. Uh, so basically, what we say is i don't care again if it's pathogens or if it's dcm at the end of the day most pet foods on the market in the marketplace today even including ones from some of the best love veterinary brands your you know your big brands are ha, do not have a formal nutrient analysis a laboratory nutrient analysis done they don't have digestibility studies done and they don't have um proper food safety protocol behind them or if they do they're not transparent about it Essentially, what we usually end up, you know, just underscoring is that if companies did have a nutrient analysis for their commercial products and they did have a digestibility study, they would have put to bed the DCM thing before it ever really started because they would have been able to prove that their food had the nutrients not only included within it, but also bioavailable or digestible to the animal. And then also, you know, in terms of raw food as well, showing that you know, those foods are free of pathogens, that neither of these things would have been an issue. Yeah, that's cool. I think people have been thinking about that this side of the pond as well and trying to, people aren't aware that there is very, when they say pet food is regulated, they really don't understand what that means. You know, I've it's made not. it for a couple of years <laughs> I, and Ireland is extremely stringent with this sort of stuff because it's jobs for the boys over here. So we like lots of civil servants doing the same job. So I'd have the same a couple of vets coming into me, middle-aged vets, uh, every three weeks, and they'd go through their premises with their clipboards and find things wrong, because if they don't find things wrong, they can't come back in three weeks. For three years, every three weeks, relentless stress. And uh, they, all they ever cared about was pathogens. They'd look under your machines, mm -hmm. and they'd get the white gloves out, and you're step forward, step back, traceability. But at no point has anybody ever considered the nutritional value of my food. They never cared mm -hmm. where my ingredients, what, what the end process was for the dog, all they saw was risk and danger, and I'm a madman. And still today, all they care about, even with dry food companies, 
And we saw this with the Hills recall. 22 million cans of dog food left the world's greatest pet food company, apparently, uh, without a single one being checked for vitamin D uh, excess. And they had 22 million. And there's multiple steps that went wrong, right? So there's, so when you're making, there's no barrier to entry in for pet food in the U.S. So if, if you want to start a pet food company in the U.S., you can probably have something mocked up by the end of next week if you start it today. Uh, you don't have to have any degrees. You don't have to have any certifications or licenses. You can just call up a manufacturer, and there are really ultimately a handful at the end of the day here in the U.S. that make all of the food. Um, they just make them all under different names. You can call them up and you can say, hey, you know, I want to start, you know, raw pet medic food and somebody will do it for you um it Ooh. might be somebody that's qualified Ooh. it might not there are computer algorithms essentially that i'll walk you guys through like how how pet food is made so there are computer algorithms there are computer programs that we use and you can type in, um, you know, what you want your ingredients to be or kind of spit out uh, what vitamins and minerals you have to add or what the premix has to, vitamin premix has to look like. And the computer says, all right, make it to this formula. You send it out. It's put through the extruder. We're, we're talking about kibble here. And um, ends up in a bag. And you don't have to take that final product and send it off to the lab to make sure that what's in it is actually what the computer said is going to be in it. Mm-hmm. And then what a lot of people also don't understand is that you can have all the best vitamins and minerals in the world in that pet food, but unless they're digestible or potentially you can ensure that they're not interacting with one another in a negative way, um, you don't, that nutrient analysis means nothing until you have what's called a digestibility study. And a lot of companies will tell you if you write to them, and I've written almost all of them, they don't answer me anymore. Um, but and most of them will come back and say, oh, well, it's an animal welfare issue. And I will tell you that a digestibility study is literally just collecting poop. Um, I don't know about anyone else, but I pick up after my dogs, after they go to the bathroom. So it's really no different. Um, the difference is that you're sending that poop sample off to the lab to be analyzed. And it's and make, oversimplifying this, but it's a simple math equation. You know what went in, right? What's coming out, you subtract it, and that's what your digestibility is. Good digestibility should be higher 80%, um, ideally 90 plus, especially if we're looking at raw food. But there are some raw foods that have really poor digestibility because they're not formulated correctly or they're using um, maybe too much synthetics or maybe too much of one thing over another. Uh, So that digestibility analysis is also uh, equally important as the nutrient analysis. Um, So when companies say that it's a welfare issue, I disagree because if that company is not doing that, then ultimately what they're doing is experimenting on your pet. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, and there's ways to get around it. I mean, there certainly are, are companies that will do, they have colonies of dogs that I promise you live better than most pets today. Um, Mm. at least here in the U S. Um, so they'll do digestibility studies. You just have to send them, you know, enough food for the 10 day trial. And if you don't want to do that, what companies can do, and some of them have, um, I believe, um, one of the rock companies over in the UK did it was at Honey's, where they collected the poop for 10 days for just people, people's dogs, people's pets, and they did it that way. Uh, so there's absolutely ways around it. 
That's yeah, that's cool. Nobody ever considers that because like the same with the shelf life studies of dry food. Nobody mm-hmm. knows if, if this is made in a land far away and it sits in a depth of cargo ship. Yeah, and then it's the hot, sweaty shelf in a pet shop and then it mm-hmm. even sitting open for two weeks. Like nutrients hate that stuff. And so they never have to measure that at all. So it's, it's mm-hmm. just we reckon that's what's in the product. And then you've got all this sort of mm-hmm. processing does to the nutrients and all the nature that goes on. All that is irrelevant. It's, we put this in, George Jetson. This is how we look at nutrition in the 1950s. Honest to God. And that's when kibble started. And that's, that's where they are still because we didn't have a lot of meat around then. So lots of cereal in a kibble form. We suddenly mm-hmm. invented extruders. We didn't have a lot of meat around at the time. And uh, suddenly tin was hard to get in the early 50s because of the war. And so kibble was perfect. And since then, it hasn't changed at all. I mean, I don't see how it's changed, except it's become more scientific on the bag. But what you're saying is is pretty dreadful. It's mm-hmm. pretty dreadful. Well, and even you're looking at the scientific on the bag, I was just explaining to somebody yesterday, the day before. So I always love to blow people's minds with, they're worried about protein. It's like, oh, don't feed over, I don't know, 27, 28% protein. Your dog might, might get aggressive, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my whole life because the percentage of protein on that bag or that can or that bag of raw food, whatever it is, um, is essentially meaningless because the percentage of protein doesn't tell you anything about the amount of grams of protein that are in that food. Canned food, I don't know, say is six, 7% protein, predominantly water. And then you have a dry food that is maybe 28% protein, but it's got no water. Um, that canned food is actually way higher in grams of protein than that dry food. And most people, and even some veterinarians will look at me and go, but that's not possible because the, the dry food says so 28%. Mm. Uh, and it, no, 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 you have to do a conversion to grams. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, that's the math. I've written about that. There is a blog on that on, on our North Point site, if somebody wants to reference that as well. Uh, about bring us back to uh, dilated cardiomyopathy with heart mm-hmm. disease in dogs. Is it related to grain-free and exotic foods, but mainly grain-free? Is it? That's the headline question that everybody wants to know. Mm. So we don't have any evidence to suggest there is a link. But what I will tell you, um, and I relearn this lesson every single day, uh, you can make numbers statistics to say just about anything you want them to. And so what I usually reply to some people when they're very adamant that there is a link is say, well, I can probably split the data to tell me that dogs who live on second floor of apartment or in an apartment building also are more apt to get DCM as well. At the end of the day, the uh, overall prevalence of DCM in the canine population is estimated to be somewhere between 0.5 and 1.1% the entire canine population. So for the U.S., if you want to, I think we're estimated now to have for COVID like 90, something like 90 million dogs. So I always use 80 million uh, just because I want to err on the side of caution. So if I use 80 million and I take 0.5 to 1.1%, to 1.1% of that population, we still end up, I think it's like 0.000005 or something percent. So we're still well below the expected prevalence based on those estimates. A lot of the cases that were reported to the FDA were uh, misdiagnosed. So a lot of heart murmurs were were sent in, um, you know, a lot of uh, congenital defects were sent in. There's, there's just so much um, unknown and there's so much so many variables and so much complexity to each of those variables 
that I think at the end of the day, you're not going to ever see the FDA come out and say that there's a link. Um, it's just way too complicated. Hmm. How do you think this rumor got started? Hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of politics involved, if you will. Hmm. I think that there was a lot of irresponsibility involved. Uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to say, come outward and, and say, you know, the big pet food companies had something to do with it or people were paid off. Is it possible? Sure. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, talking about it as if it's a, a scandal or trying to create drama it really does nothing. I think it's important for us as pet owners because when it's your own pet, it's, it's really hard, right? It becomes very emotional. I think that it's important to just look at what information is out there and what evidence is available. And I think, you know, looking at the small number in comparison to the dog population, I don't think it's something that the average pet owner should be worried about. Yeah, like to give okay. to, to give those figures context again, in a population of 18 million, 1% of 80 million is 800,000. There could be literally 800,000 of these dogs walking around. Let's take the, the 0.5%, 400,000 dogs. The FDA gets alerted to 600 cases, which is a, a blip. Yeah. I mean, that's not something the FDA, with its tiny financial resources for the pet population, would react mm -hmm. to normally. But maybe in the 70s, after all the dogs and cats started dying at DCM, that they stopped putting touring in pet food, stopped putting meat in pet food completely in the 70s, and cats started falling off yeah. all around the place, dying by the tens of thousands. The FDA responded well. And that was actually the start of AFCO and formulating pet food. And they said, well, hang on, mm -hmm. there's no taurine in this pet food. That's where cats need taurine. It's like, well, cats need meat. And that's where taurine is. And you've just stopped using meat. So, And know, that argument was kind of brought over for the, the cat DCM issue was caused, this was back in the 80s, was a lack of taurine in the pet food because there was not meat. Taurine comes from meat. It does not come from grains. It does not come from... That's why it's called taurine, uh, the bull. plant-based yeah. sources. It comes from meat. It comes from, from muscle meat. So if you remove the meat from cat's diets, yes, they get taurine deficient dilated cardiomyopathy. The same thing was initially thought to be happening in dogs. They thought that these dogs were taurine deficient. And that was indeed not the case. Um, even the, some of the oh. golden retrievers, um, a good amount of the sample size of, of these cases, golden retrievers, which are known to have a genetic predisposition to DCM, which mm -hmm. skewed the data entirely. But oh. even those dogs did not have um, largely taurine deficiency. Some of them did, but most of them did not. Okay. Um, what we kind of learned from this, though, is <laughs> we don't really know how to measure taurine. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. There's whole blood taurine, there's plasma. Do you measure it when these dogs are fasting? Do you measure it after they eat? Do you measure it, you know, at night, in the morning, whatever. So that became apparent, which was really interesting. And then uh, an another really important thing I want to touch on, because I see really dangerous recommendations all the time. You hear vets saying, oh, please, you know, just add, if you want to feed grain-free food or feed raw, that's fine. But make sure you add some pasta or um, oatmeal or bread or uh, I've seen a can of corn. Please Why? don't do that. Why would you do that? Oh, you haven't heard that? Oh, those are my favorite. No. So I cannot stress enough to not do that because taurine actually lives in the bile acids. So in the digestive juices that live in the stomach, same thing goes for people. And so when you're adding extra fiber, especially to a kibble-based diet, if you're adding extra fiber to an already complete and balanced diet, and, you're, and sometimes I've seen you know, a fair amount of this be suggested to be added, 
that fiber is actually going to absorb the bile acid. And so what happens is you end up getting increased excretion of the bile acids in the stool, which translates to a decreased chlorine level. And you can actually create the very thing you're trying to avoid by adding extra, adding extra fiber. That the, what some of those studies in the past uh, were linking to um, um, the reduced calorie pet foods, which where mm-hmm. they jack up the fiber content because God forbid Correct. they should lower the carbohydrate content for these poor little studies. They in, instead keep the hard carbohydrates where they are because they're important and keep the protein yep. low, but they jack up the fiber content. Mm-hmm. And so you get dogs eating huge amounts of indigestible fiber, which if you're worried about bloat, would, in my opinion, would be very, very risky. But it does, it hampers the ability for the dog to, re- to re-digest the bile and then for indigestion. Didn't Shulof, Shulof was very annoyed about this. Shulof is a guy that owns a, a dry pet food company in the US, grain-free pet food company, a lawyer by trade, and uh, not a big fan of the FDA. And so when these cases came along, he highlighted a number of things to me. He was saying like, you know, isn't it crazy? We had the melamine scandal here in 2007 where um, um, Asian kind of feeding greens were coming in laced with melamine to, to jack up artificially the protein content on the side of the pack and it killed thousands and thousands of dogs. And the FDA did respond, but they were very slow to name the companies involved. So despite them knowing uh, for a few months what some of these companies, uh, the names of these companies, it took a senator to get involved saying, give us the names of these companies so pets can, pet owners can stop buying the pet food products. That's how the FDA responded to the 2007 recall because the biggest companies were involved, hundreds of thousands of, of, of kilos of this stuff. I mean, many brands across the top things. But the DCM scandal, 600 suspected cases, the companies found nothing wrong with their products, nothing was recalled, and they named every company that they suspected might be at, at issue. And there's I lots of lawsuits on, right? That, um, yeah, because Shulof got, got really annoyed about that. And he said, well, show, the, the piece that really put the cat among the pigeons was by Lisa Freeman who I'm no friend of, and she, this is her second uh, piece. And her first piece in 2013 was one of the most read studies on PLOS, I think she issued it, uh, about the risks and some benefits of, of feeding fresh food to pets. So that was the dominating article. And then she comes out against grain-free pet food, which is interesting because grain-free pet food is 50% of the US pet food market at the moment. Mm-hmm. So it, it would be seen in my uh, more kind of tinfoil hat approach to things. Uh, I would say that, it is a serious player. It's taking half of the pet food sales. And cereal-based pet food companies might be thinking, hmm, and, and people might think that sounds ridiculously far-fetched. But I would say the FDA well, have history of doing funny things in pet food. Uh, and I think this is another one of them, in my opinion. Why, why yeah, would they get involved I mean, involved you've, in you've seen the FDA back off uh, quite a bit uh, in their stance on this. So, I mean, and they've, they've said, you know, they're not going to come out. Uh, and speak on it, especially when foods seemingly seem to have no ill effect on the pets eating them, especially for many years. People think that grain-free foods are brand new, and they're not. They've really been around for a few decades. Um, They started off as being therapeutic, and they became rampant uh, once the melamine thing hit. But they've been around, and they've been in the marketplace for a long time. The other thing a lot of people, and I would argue veterinarians don't often realize, is a lot of households feed grain-free pet food. Um, And we're talking about kibble here. Um, They're feeding grain-free kibble not because they're worried about the dog um, having an issue with grains per se, but um, with the amount of children now with celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity or um, even becoming more prevalent. And I know this from my human nutrition side. 
Um, children are becoming more and more sensitive to the chemicals that are in food, um, especially here in the U.S. The um, grains and such that are going into pet food are not the grains that you and I would be consuming. So they're laced with a lot of agricultural chemicals. And these kids are reacting. So, you know, celiac, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, um, and then other types of um, chemical sensitivities. So they're feeding these grain-free foods because of the health of the, the children or the people living in the household. I know a lot of people that are, are uh, you know, just working in nutrition, celiac and gluten sensitive, and they react to the saliva um, when they play fetch with their dog wow. or you know, get licked by their pet. So there are other reasons why people decide to feed these foods. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I don't doubt it. It's, it seems to be, though, um, it, it, in 2018, there was an industry report, and I didn't write down the, the link, but I'll put it up later. Shulaf was saying the danger is that, that this is going to very negatively affect my business as a grain-free pet food producer who was totally innocent in this. He tested the pet foods that Freeman identified as possible, as possible issues in, these, in, in this study of hers, uh, which wasn't a study. It was a non-peer-reviewed opinion piece that she wrote but phrased very much like it was a peer-reviewed study she wrote it like a literature review and it was the it. first commentary piece that the uh, journal of american veterinary medicine published the yeah first there one. you go uh, that's just uh, astounding to me they also yeah, they, they were the same uh, journal that published the 2013 piece on the your risks involved at raw feeding no benefits but uh, in 2018 raw for the first time in about 10 years uh, grain-free pet food sales dipped by 0.5%. They were on an upward trajectory of like 3 or 4% a year, which is huge increases year on year, and they dipped by 0.5%. He said, there you go. That's exactly what they're trying to do. They're just trying to slow the growth. And so it's, it's muddy in the waters. Merchants of Doubt, as Nick was talking about the last time we were on, it's a class. Uh, it's on YouTube. You can watch it. It's a great book. But in my opinion, this is very much just so muddying the waters a little bit to say mm, there might be some problems with grain free so don't back away from cereal based pet food yet same with the raw same with the hysteria about the safety of, of raw you have just proven nikki the other side of your life i mean the two biggest things you could have done for us you have eliminated this dcm nonsense and then you've got this raw food study that says it's incredibly safe and yet where are we does it does it actually change anything you know what i mean how it actually gets me a little bit annoyed when I think about this, this, this amazing stuff that you are putting down, and it's quite obviously true, And but the damage is done. They they sow those seeds, and they don't care. After two or three years, vets remember, it grain-free causes DCM. Like when Yuka Nuba says, RF Power Foods help you live 30% longer. That was a complete lie. They were taken to oh, task. Oh, they got sued for that. Yeah, by the FTC, and they said, mm -hmm. you can't say that. But it was on veterinary walls. It doesn't years. matter. Yeah. Don't give a damn. Yeah, how yeah. much is it? Half a million? Pfft, take it away, lads. So I wonder, you know, do you get despondent a little bit about, I mean, maybe you're encouraged about the fact your raw study has done so much good and it has been so well read. That's a really positive thing. Uh, I suppose, do you think we need more of that to kind of change it quicker? One of the big things that we can all do as a community is change the verbiage, right? So change it from minimally processed or change it from raw to minimally processed. Um, I think that's going to do us a world of good. It's going to start well what is that and it opens up the conversation yeah we need just more people sharing more people talking about it and don't be afraid to open up the conversation it doesn't have to be um confrontational i mean there's plenty of people that i love and respect very very much that don't agree with raw uh, but they're brilliant brilliant people or they're brilliant veterinarians um just because somebody doesn't subscribe to that way of feeding doesn't mean that you know you need to be confrontational it you know it's it's a conversation you know just opening it up um 
to that, it can do a world of good for everybody. Totally. I like that. That's spot on. Yeah. So we're coming towards the end, and I'd love to uh, ask uh, a sort of look into the future uh, of things that you, you maybe bring. You know, we, we were talking before the show about you know, where you came from and, and the things that you do. And, and where would you go with, let's you know, park the DCM, the grain free, the, the sort of current safety stuff? <laughs> Those are just side time. projects. <laughs> you know, what's the thing that excites you that you can bring from where we're going with the sort of pro-inflammatory, the longevity stuff? Let's let's look yeah. at that. That's a big thing in Forever Dog and, you know, uh, lots of techs that we're looking at at the moment. Where, where would you start to look into longevity for people's pets out there? There are two incredibly brilliant um, other uh, researchers, doctors, females that I'm working with. Um, that are absolute powerhouses here. Um, I hope that everybody gets to inter- be introduced to them. But what we're trying to do is bring nutrition um, more to the forefront of medicine, both for humans and for pets. I think for such a long time and still, it's very much laughed at or thought, you know, or said that it doesn't matter. And it does. And we have more mounting evidence to show that it does matter. Um, and it matters quite significantly because it can influence genetics. It can influence um, everything within the body, um, as well as her body's response to uh, outward uh, signs of stress. So toxic things in the environment, uh, things like that. Um, what we're trying to do is bring nutrition to be more at the forefront. And we're taking it a step further because you know we're not just studying nutrition, we're studying pathology and biochemistry and things like that. So if we can do a good job with that, we can potentially change the way that we practice medicine, both for humans and for pets. I can see that dial move a little bit before my time on this earth is done. Um, I think I'll have done a good job. Yeah, that's cool. Um, when you're trying to get a raw dog food study off the ground, um, it's very difficult to study dogs. Um, you have to get, mm-hmm. you, particularly in the UK, and I'm not really sure in Ireland because I haven't even looked into Ireland, but in the UK, if you're trying to get it off the ground, you have to apply for licenses and, mm-hmm. and all to do with animal welfare. And it's like, look, we're not, you know, let's say I wanted Nick to say, Nick, let's send 50 dogs to Nick. And Nick takes a blood test and we just check the calcium levels in dry versus raw fed dogs. Very simple, but quite telling. So let's have a look under the hood. Nick's not allowed to do that if it's part of it as an experiment so easily. And actually getting the study off the ground is so difficult because anything invasive is not allowed. But metabolites are great because... You can send, um, Nick can collect 50 wee samples, wee poo, uh, hair. So anything that comes out of the dog, you're allowed, that just falls yep. off naturally or falls out naturally, you're allowed to study. So metabolites mm-hmm. really opens it up because at the moment we're looking at digestibility of um, various things and it's not that exciting. You really want to get out the bloods of the animal uh, mm-hmm. before and after, but that is mega expensive. So people are wondering why these raw dog food studies aren't being done. It's because the companies that are producing the studies at the moment have skin in the game. Big Pharma produced the, the, the studies for the drugs. and Well, the, the there companies. is one company here in the U.S., and I always butcher their U.K. name, but one of the companies here in the U.S. that's doing and funding a ton of research is Instinct, oh, yeah? uh, formerly oh, known as Nature's Variety. So mm. they're doing a fantastic job. They've got a lot of really cool things um, on the front burner, if you will. So stay tuned mm. for that watch their website. So they, they do post some stuff. Um, I mm-hmm. think they're waiting to publish. I know that there's some things that are in queue. Um, I can't speak to anything, but they're, yeah. they're doing a great job. 
Just remind us of their name. Uh, nature's Variety or Instinct here in the U.S. And then it's Nature's, nature's Menu variety. in the U.K. Okay, Nature's Variety in the States. They're the people to check, I guess. Have you got any pressing questions for uh, Ms. Kamek? One of them was that came up earlier, Nikki, was uh, mm. how are... Uh, actually, there was two good questions there. The first one is how are fresh pet food companies, let's say raw dog food companies, uh, keeping their products so clean in a country where they permit salmonella and E. Yeah. Uh, e. coli on the chicken that they are, on the bits they're getting? So um, there's a bunch of different ways for companies to do that. Um, there's some companies that don't HPP here in the U.S. Uh, HPP is high pressure processing or high pressure pasteurization. Yeah. yeah, they squish it. Um, so, and that, that's probably a, worth a whole nother um, podcast. The ones that don't um, are super, super careful with their sourcing, or at least they should be. Um, if they are super careful with their sourcing, typically you're going to see it be really expensive. And they're testing um, at several different critical control points throughout that manufacturing process and before it leaves the facility. And then they've got um, really good um, transportation. Um, if you will, then you have the camp that HPPs who, you know, there are some companies that still source the same way, um, as some of the ones that don't. And then there are some that maybe source that wouldn't necessarily be something you'd want to eat. Mm. You know, it kind of goes all over the place, if you will. Um, I don't believe that HPP is necessarily a bad thing. I think, you know, there are some studies for human food um, that show if you do it for a very long time at a very high temperature, there can be some denaturation of protein um, and some nutrient loss. But from what I can see um, from the data that we have through the good, I would say the good companies here in the States, the HPP, there is no nutrient loss or denaturation of protein, um, which is a really, really good thing, um, especially for those of us that want to fight the raw fight and see it here and are maybe potentially worried about pathogens or um, things of that nature. I think it's still better than going with a more processed oh, yeah. or cooked diet. So, yeah, I mean, it does kill all the good bugs, though, Nikki, doesn't it? That's the problem. It doesn't always. Some well, of these HPP guys doesn't. actually not, it doesn't necessarily have to, or they're re inoculating. Oh. Um, they're using mm-hmm. uh, a, a good probiotic or a prebiotic um, type of uh, technology, yeah. if you will. And again, you know, I think the way it was explained to me. There are only a handful of pathogenic serovars salmonella. I think there's 2,500 or 2,400 different types of serovars salmonella. And most of them are not dangerous or are going to yeah. make sick. Yeah. Um, and so his response was, well, if there's an environment where even the good salmonella can grow, it means that the bad salmonella can also grow. And so that's where the zero tolerance policy comes in in the U.S. And it's kind of hard to argue that. Um, from a food safety perspective, you know, I am absolutely one that believes that, you know, the the good bacteria need to be there and need to grow and be able to grow and survive. But at the same time, you know, you want to eliminate your, or at least reduce the risk for the harmful ones as much as you can. Yeah. I mean, there might be a place for those products where they are used as a base and you, and you teach people, mm-hmm. look, you know, take your products off the shelf and start feeding as much fresh in on top of that as you can. Mm-hmm. It'd be a hell of a yeah. lot better, in my opinion. And I've seen this stuff. Yep. We actually were one of the first countries in Europe that had one of those machines. It looks like something from a 1980 Superman movie. It's like a giant swimming pool made of steel. And yep. you can see windows. And it's full of water. And on each side are these enormous steel rods hanging out the sides of them. And you go in wearing your huge earmuffs and it's really clean. And I was one of the first 
food companies to try it with. So I tried it with my raw dog food. And I thought, oh, I'm onto something here. This is a great extended shelf life. I mean, that's what every company wants to do because shipping raw is such a pain in the, in the bum. So um, in the product goes, and uh, he was explaining that, so the water is this size, and the rods start to compress, and they can squish the water, and the water just starts to decrease in size. And it's like, where is the water going? And he goes, it's being mm-hmm. compressed. There's loads of space between those molecules. They can put more pressure on my food uh, deeper than the Mariana Trench in the Pacific, more than mm-hmm. seven miles mm-hmm. of pressure. Mm-hmm. And, and my, after, afterwards, when my food came out, of fingers crossed, I was hoping it would look the same. It didn't. It looked like it had been cooked. But now he had put a good bit of pressure on it. And so, so I, was kinda, I took a step back and said, well, I can't sell that to the raw fields mm-hmm. around. Now that they've had the good stuff, they're going to say, mm, why is that? Well, there's now mm-hmm. raw here. So I used to feed a more uh, like local farm to table raw when I was living in Connecticut. And now I'm living in Georgia. And raw is not as easily come across down in the yeah. south at least yeah. i'm finding as it was up north so um i'm feeding instinct and back when i was feeding instinct i don't know five six years ago it was all gray it looked like it was cooked through all the yeah. way through now it's all pink they took the um pressure way way down yeah and, yeah and they're still testing um you know and it's all their their pathogen clearance is phenomenal um cool. and they do the nutrient analysis and the digestibility and all oh, those good things good. so yeah, i'm super good. super impressed with it yeah well, one question that what came did come up earlier, people wanting to know that whole thing about digestibility and you were saying, mm-hmm. oh, I send my poop off to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, get it checked. Uh, and they're saying, well, where, where, where is mm-hmm. there, there a special lab in the States that does that? Right. Yeah. So yeah. I don't send my dogs out, but if you're a pet food company, you can contract a, a laboratory to be able to run, you know, X amount of dogs um, over, you know, X amount of time. Usually it's uh, seven to 10 days that you want to run that. I I'm sure I could, uh, but I, it's not something I would do on my own. Sure you should you ring could. the manufacturer for that, surely. Yeah, she rings the manufacturer. They should have that kind of data. No, they, 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 they won't. Oh, yeah, yeah, they, they, they won't. should, but most but of them should. won't tell yeah. you. There are yeah. some companies that will. Um, we did a presentation last year. I surveyed, I did do it under a fake name, but I surveyed the top 10 uh, independent, like small brands um, in the U.S. for kibble, for canned, and for raw. I found that I think like one or two out of the raw in the kibble did a digestibility. You won't often see it for canned, to be honest, Mm. at least in the Mm. States, because most canned food um, does not meet the nutritional caloric requirement. You have to feed so much of it. um, So that actually you won't often see AFCO statements on canned food for that reason. But uh, kibble and and raw, um, only a couple companies have done and will give you that information. That's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Nikki, you have been absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. A lot of people saying it's the best they've they've ever had. Which we, us three Thanks, are really guys. a little bit sad about. You're <laughs> a bit amazing. So Aww. thank you yeah, very, very much. So we indeed. can't we, we can't have you back. Oh. It's making us look bad. So yeah. no more Nikki. No more Nikki. I want to drink with Brenda next time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I, I, I missed the wine one. Oh, yeah, we'll get you back the next time. Next time we're on the piss, Nikki, we're, we're going to uh, invite, invite you in. <laughs> we have to yeah. minimize how many times we do it because by the be end of it, we're be very <laughs> Talking is clearly. Um, yeah, fair play, Nikki. That was so interesting. Guys, um, thanks to everybody over Christmas because our Christmas party one has been watched a lot of times and that really helped with our Patreon. Uh, all over Aww. Christmas, you can see people were donating on Patreon. We really appreciate it. It helps us get superstars in like Nikki. She doesn't come cheap, guys. 
And so uh, <laughs> you'll find us on Raw Pet Medics, um, Patreon on uh, forward slash Raw Pet Medics. And the price of a cup of tea uh, a month is all we ask for. If you can afford it, great. If you can't, no sweat. We're going to be here for free anyway because this stuff is just great. We get to meet legends like Nikki and look what these people are doing. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. It's so interesting. And you don't hear about Amazing. this stuff enough. And like this is the good side of science that we need to, we need to talk more about, you know? I want to thank you guys because as Nick said in the beginning, I mean, I came over, I met you guys, what, five, six years ago. Um, and you know, you were like legends in my eye with, without you guys, I wouldn't be sitting here. So thank you. That's mad. Thank you very much. That's all. Thanks. Now I'm going to have to thank Nick because it was the same with me. Like what, what you just said there was what I thought about Nick because Nick was doing all this talking online and now nobody was listening to him at the time. I felt a bit sorry but I have to be honest with you. But I just, I just thought, bloody hell, here's a, like a top bet in the UK and he's talking this stuff and like, as I was contacted him and Nick just got back to me straight away and he's just chatting mm-hmm. to me and so few people would do that but only people mm-hmm. that are genuinely interested in the subject. As soon as you sit down and talk to Brent or Nick uh, and Nikki, the same thing, as soon as I met you, it's people that are just bubbling. They just want to talk about this. They want to hear they, they, they want to discuss it through scientists that are just, you don't need to have credentials. You don't need to be in the same field. It just has to be people. All these people in these comment sections are scientists because mm-hmm. they thought, you know what? My dog's itchy or he's got recurring good issues. I'm just going to try this fresh food thing and give it a go and see if it's true. Like that's a proper scientist. Have a look, make a decision, uh, test this and have a mm-hmm. look at the results. You know, that's just, a, that's pure science. So I love uh, this it's so good in, in my with me it started with nick and uh, nick was what put me on the road but i remember meeting you five or six years ago nicky and i thought straight away oh my god you're you're intimidating he switched on the raw and then within two or three years you're coming up with the goods and we're all reading you you know it's fantastic good on it's all fantastic. of us yeah Thanks, hats on the back for us all yeah. we're good it's enthusiasm <laughs> it's, and, and how yeah. can you not be enthusiastic about raw food healthy dogs that's the bottom line isn't mm-hmm. it yeah you have healthy yeah. dogs to go out and run and that's do crazy things and... okay wonderful Nikki thank you thank yeah. you thank, thank you. you you've been you. absolutely yeah. amazing absolutely. you've overshadowed us all immensely okay. so uh, cool that was such a good show thanks so much again Nikki and uh, thank guys you. thanks everyone thank for being you. here and we will talk to you all very very soon Bye. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Thank Thanks. you so much. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.